This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It might seem odd to many Americans to know that back in the second half of the 20th century, Time magazine put not one but three major American theologians on its cover. Each of these men had a distinctive role to play in American culture in the mid-20th century, and they are the concern of a new book about which we're going to be talking today. But there's another aspect of this that's really important. All of them were talking about sin. As a matter of fact, in America, in the mid-20th century and beyond, the conversation in public about sin was a very urgent issue. That leads us to question why it is less so today. And that's why we need to get about the business of thinking in public. Andrew Finstow is the director of the Honors College and serves as associate professor in the Department of History at Boise State University. He's the author of the book, Original Sin and Everyday Protestants, The Theology of Reinhold Niebuhr, Billy Graham, and Paul Tillich in an Age of Anxiety. Professor Finstow, and welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you. Glad to join you. You know, when I saw your book, I was immediately struck by the, the, the sense that it made to see these three figures who towered over American Protestantism at mid-century, in the 20th century, and yet uh, by the, uh, the fact that no one had yet, at least to my knowledge, brought these three together in some kind of consideration of their relative importance. How did you come across this idea? Well, it's interesting that you you saw that it made sense because lots of people still question their uh, the trio there, not sure that they actually do fit together. But I appreciate that you recognize that they do. And for me, the way that it happened was I was working as a graduate student at Boston College and thinking about dissertation topics, had done some work on Paul Tillich, had done some reading with Reinhold Niebuhr and was less familiar with Billy Graham. I uh, certainly knew of him in a popular sense, but hadn't really read any of his stuff very carefully. Anyway, I was working on the post-World War II period, and I set out to uh, put them in the kind of usual story, which is to say that Niebuhr and Graham would be on one side of the 1940s and 50s and 60s religious climate, and Billy Graham would be on the other side with the likes of Norman Vincent Peale and others like that. That's kind of the narrative that I was uh, reading on and, and thinking along those lines. And then as I researched Billy Graham, read his various books and sermons, I just came to see that there's there was a different kind of substance there than the kind of pop religiosity that he's often uh, placed within, and he started to sound at certain points like a Niebuhr, less so a Tillich, although as he keeps going in his career, he brings in some more kind of existential psychological insights. At any rate, I just saw him speaking over and over again about sin, and certainly Tillich and Niebuhr were doing that as well, although some people will argue with me, especially related to Tillich on that front. Um, and so that's where it came. It was a very just kind of obvious point of convergence for me, and it doesn't go, you know, too much beyond. I don't try to make too much of the three of them belonging in the same category, other when you're, other than when you're talking about taking sin seriously. You know, the the first thought I had when I saw the cover had little to do with theology, even though that would be my major concern. It had to do with the public stature, the the uh, the role of a theologian, and especially the period from say 1945 to 1970, in the United States was rather unparalleled, at least in terms of the public intellectuals uh, that you had uh, in the case of, of Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich. 
But if you add uh, media presence to that and cultural influence, it's hard to argue that these three, in terms of theological influences, might not well be the three most often cited. And of course, you, you deal with the fact that Time Magazine had each of these three men on their covers mm-hmm. uh, in respective issues. But nonetheless, when you talk about the theological divide, that's where I think you probably find your argument. And and most people, at least on the evangelical side, are likely to look at the, those those three men in the photograph on the cover of your book and say, you know, two of them belong on one side and one on the other. Mm-hmm. In this case, uh, with Niebuhr and Tillich on the liberal side of the theological divide, and uh, and with with Graham as a as an evangelical. But when you're talking about the the bifurcation of the background of your book, you're really talking about the idea at mid century between the, the, those who believe that the revival of religion in America was completely captive to this idea of Americanism and American exceptionalism, and and, and then on the other side, a more prophetic divide. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so I, uh, that's partly as I was doing my research on Graham, as I mentioned, that's where I came. I just saw Graham as a more critical figure, a more critical thinker, um, commenting on on the place of America and Americans in the world relative to Christianity. And and Niebuhr, of course, you don't have to make that case. Although some people want to say Niebuhr is still. Uh, still supporting American exceptionalism, especially after 1952. Tillich uh, doesn't really enter that conversation as much, but uh, I see the, all three of them as making pretty strong criticisms and observations about America in a time where you have uh, a great degree of celebration of American virtue. Uh, so yes, they're they're definitely that divide, as you mentioned. Now, what about the whole idea here of a public theologian? It's hard to imagine, as we're here in the, the second decade of the 21st century, that back in the middle of the 20th century, you had public intellectuals who were theologians who had massive uh, readerships, massive influence. They were on the cover of the magazines. That they were a part of the of the dinner table conversation in many homes. They were a part of the intellectual conversation on university campuses. What defined that unique moment in the mid twentieth century when theologians played such an important cultural role? Yeah, that's a really good question, and one that I have a few a few answers to. Although I don't know how satisfactory they will be. One is I think you have a different to speaking about media, it's a different media era. So you have the times, the lives, the looks, the kind of mass market publications that have a corner on American reading habits, whereas not long after these guys, in terms of Tillich and, and Niebuhr, are, are, have passed away and we move into the 70s and 80s and all the way up to today with the diffusion of, of media across all kinds of uh, different mediums, so the internet, et cetera. I just don't think you have the same kind of, to use that word in a different sense, captive audience. I think we had a reading public, you had a letter-writing public, and you didn't have the, the t- television obviously was there, but it wasn't quite the dominant presence that it, that it becomes. So I think you have a different, you have enough of a different generation and moment in terms of what uh, reading habits, I would say, and paying attention to current events. And you also had kind of a, I mean, there's the whole idea of a consensus culture or a national culture. You don't yet quite have the the cracks in trust in institutions. That stuff is brewing in the 50s. but And there is a kind of mainstream Christianity that people are identifying with in ways that is more fractured today. So it's it's kind of that story of from the mid to late 60s forward, the different fissures that start to that start to creep into the American society. I'm not advocating that we should be back in the 1940s or 1950s culture, but I think that's that's part of it. And then in terms of 
where are the theologians today, which I think is an implication of your question. And this is generally speaking of academics overall. I think part of the answer has to do with over-specialization. We have fewer and fewer folks who are willing to and or are encouraged to take on the kind of big sweeping questions that Niebuhr and Tillich and even Graham did. Um, and, and in the academy, we're pretty specialized. Now, there's some pushback on that. And and you can criticize Niebuhr for overgeneralizing on things, et cetera, et cetera. But we just – you don't have the same kind of emphasis on a, on those big questions, I don't think. Part of that has to do with postmodernity, et cetera, but that's, those are some answers. Let's talk about the particular intellectual moment of the post-war period because there were some very big questions framing more thoughtful Americans in terms of – of their fears, their concerns, their anxieties. We're talking about the end of the Second World War. We're talking about uh, the new reality of the Cold War. We're talking about uh, America trying to find its way in the world. Why was this a particularly urgent and fertile time for for public theology in America? Well, I think you've put your finger on it in the question with the given the context. You come off of a depression, which is still very much a memory for most of the Americans of mature age in the 40, late 40s and 50s. You've got World War II, which I think in this country we don't really fully understand. I mean, I've, I'm obviously far removed from that experience, but in the research that I've done, and you see in the moment the degree to which that did impact families, the number of dead, the number of wounded, uh, and some of the more critical and thoughtful movies and novels that deal with the fallout from World War II, like I say in the book, post, post-war post in some sense is a misnomer. And we treat this as the good war, and we treat these veterans as kind of unmitigated heroes. And I'm not trying to take that away in any sense, but the the casualty of that war on the American psyche and on Americans generally, I think, raised some of these questions. And then as, as information and understanding about the Holocaust, German Holocaust came out, which of course comes a little bit later and is kind of trickles into American culture. The dropping of the atomic bombs, whatever a person's view of that issue is, just the sheer magnitude of, and power and the death that accompanies that. I mean, these are just monumental events of human killing, destruction, etc. And then the Cold War, the fear. I'm old enough to know of some of the some of the return to some Cold War anxieties in the 80s, it's funny, in my elementary school in Washington State, we had to do duck and cover drills under our desks, which was a holdover from the 1950s. Not every one of my age group had to do that, but I did. So anyway, those kinds of, you know, life and death is right there staring you in the face. Um, and of course, there's a lot of cultural paranoia and things like that, some irresponsible portrayals of that moment. But yeah. by and large, it's those massive events that you touched on in the framing of the question that I think raises these questions. Now, you could argue that <clears throat> clearly in our own, in the decade, the first decade of the 21st century, we've had some pretty significant calamities. Where is the same kind of conversation? I can say that, you know, there's been a kind of Niebuhr renaissance. Uh, you'll see him quoted quite frequently in various major publications. But but he's been dead since 1971. Um, and you do have words like sin and evil coming back into I think a little bit more legitimate discourse, but even there, you don't really have the same kind of articulate spokesperson. For yeah, it. every so. worldview has to come to terms with what's wrong with the world uh, and and what's wrong with human beings in particular. And uh, there there are all kinds of different ways people have tried to do that. 
you deal with a very specific term that you claim unifies these three men, and, and, and that is original sin. And mm-hmm. before we can actually have a, a, a good conversation about that, I'm going to ask you to define that term. When you speak of original sin, what exactly are you talking about? Uh, well, that's a, that's a good question. It's a, it's both simple and complicated at the same time. But what I'm saying in in short is that this is an understanding out of the Christian tradition, and there are different ways that people are going to interpret it, interpret the particularities of it or the origin of it. But it's an understanding that humans are inherently flawed. There's a state of being um, that is turned in on the self. That is. Uh, um, at war with God, at war with the self. Uh, I like the use that Tillich tries to update the term with estrangement or alienation. One is estranged from themselves, from God, and from others. I think that's a helpful way of talking about it. But it's these inclinations and forces within us that tend toward uh, a rebellion against, I think, a voice of conscience uh, or our sense of God, etc., and then I would fall back on some of the terms like pride, concupiscence. Concupiscence, I think, is helpful. Outside of just a, a sexual connotation, it's this unlimited desire to possess and manipulate and have power over almost anything and everything that human beings come in contact with, whether that's persons or material objects. Now I'm getting kind of long-winded here. Well, that's I all right, because I, I want to ask you a question. It, it, just before we even get into the depths of your argument, if you could envision a meeting in which uh, Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr and Billy Graham would be present in a room, and they were to talk about original sin, do you think they would actually think they're talking about the same thing? I, at some level, yes, I do, and then, uh, and then they would start to disagree when it comes down to the origin where this comes from, Niebuhr and Tillich would think of it more along the, in, in a kind of a mythical sense, but no less true. That is, thinking about the story of Adam and Eve and other elements, uh, they wouldn't have a literal sense of that. Graham, at least in the period that I'm talking about, has more of a literal sense of, of Adam and Eve and that kind of biological transmission that dates all the way back to Augustine. But I think that they would... I think that they would... I, agree and identify with, you know what, there's something wrong with the human condition, or the human condition is defined by the fact that we are not all straight and narrow, and we have all kinds of inclinations and behavioral tendencies that run contrary to what you might consider good or virtuous. So I think they would agree, and I think actually Graham is paying attention to what both Niebuhr and Tillich say on these things, and his categories are similar. Uh, you know, and and part of this is this is Christian tradition: sin of pride, sin of concupiscence, or Graham might speak of worldliness, um, unbelief. So I think that they would have some some categories and some terms that they would agree on, and they would agree on the fact. Here's probably the most important thing that I think, at a practical level, I think they would agree that history teaches this teaches this this lesson. I mean, you mentioned a moment ago, all worldviews have to come to terms some level with evil in the world or the nature of humanity. And I think they would also agree in that way um, that if you look at history, if you look, in fact, even if you just look day to day at the way that humans behave and treat one another and even treat themselves, um, there there is something radically wrong Uh, so to speak. I think they would agree at that level. 
It's one thing to talk about original sin, it's yet another thing to define it. One of the interesting things in a conversation about this is that public ideas often have to be looked at in retrospect in order for us to understand exactly what was being talked about, what was being insinuated, or what was being articulated and asserted. It's easy to talk about original sin so long as you don't have to define it. But when you define it, one of the crucial issues is, of course, what exactly is sin before you can even talk about original sin? In the biblical conception, it is the creature's rebellion against God. It is the act of disobedience. And that requires an understanding that we have to wonder Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr may actually have had. By the time we reach the 1970s, psychiatrist Carl Menninger is asking the question, whatever happened to sin? Uh, it, it just isn't talked about so much in American popular culture. But when you go back to the period of your primary concern, especially in the 50s and the 60s, you have Billy Graham and Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr, you argue, all talking about original sin. And uh, you, you've made clear that you think they would have commonalities and some, and some differences here. Let, let me try to offer something of, uh, of an analysis of what these three men represented uh, on this question. When it comes to, uh, to Billy Graham, I think most evangelical Christians would understand that what he's talking about here is, uh, is the, the primal sin of, of human creatures against God. So it's the, it's the rebellion of the creature against the creator, rooted in the historicity, the Genesis narrative, uh, passed down from Adam and Eve to, to all of their heirs. And, and thus the first fact we know uh, about what's wrong with the world is the fact that there is an original sin of which we are not only now being informed, but with which we have been from, uh, from the beginning participants. If you deal with Reinhold Niebuhr, you're dealing with someone who uh, was at least tempted to think uh, that, uh, that the primary locus or, or location of, of human sinfulness was in the social order. And, uh, and at least earlier in his career, he sought to, uh, to somewhat absolve the individual of, of that sinful responsibility. And then uh, I think probably his engagement with the racial issue as much as anything else led him to, uh, to reconsider that and see sin not only in the social structures but also uh, in, uh, in individual life. Uh, when you come to Paul Tillich, that's, that's the most problematic one, at least in my view – to talk about original sin in any kind of Christian context, and, and more about that later. But th- at this point in particular, uh, Tillich seemed to have an absolute divide between social ethics and personal ethics, made most clear, as you document in your book, by the fact that in his personal life, uh, well, th- there, there, was a, there, were, there was a sexual licentiousness that, that hardly seems to, to match the concern he had for sin in the social sphere. Is, is that at least as you try to set out the, the distinctions between these three people, does that make sense in terms of how you understand the unique position of each of these three? Yeah, so if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, you started out with Graham more on the kind of individual sensibility, Niebuhr on the social side or the yes. structures of destruction kind of thing. Actually, that's a Tillich phrase. I just threw a Tillich phrase in there. And then Tillich is, yeah, he's 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 got his own personal issues that are at least well known and then how well documented is another thing but there clearly was something going on there and Tillich actually has a similar trajectory than Niebuhr in that he's really concerned with you know religious socialism social right. systems of sin and then by the time he's in America he doesn't lose that entirely but he's very much emphasized on individual anxiety and separation from God etc so yeah that's an accurate characterization I think um, I think and, and Niebuhr 
spends more time. He balances, as you pointed out. Yeah, he's on the social side and the individual side. Tillich seems more individualistic in a different sense than Graham, but uh, certainly there, if that's an accurate summation of what you just yeah, I, I think it's, 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 as a theologian, at least when I read your book, the, the, the first thought I had was, okay, I see these three on the front, and I understand that each played a very important and influential role as a public figure and a public thinker in America at the middle of the 20th century. And, uh, and you convinced me, as much as I've read uh, all of Tillich and, and Niebuhr, uh, that, uh, that they do deal with, uh, with original sin and with the larger issue of sin, just as, a, as, a, as an intellectual and theological category. But I'll, I'll tell you what my problem is, Professor, and that is that, that in the end, uh, Paul Tillich denied the reality of a personal knowable God. And, and Reinhold Niebuhr's own brother, Richard Niebuhr, suspected that he really didn't believe in a personal God either. So when you talk about sin, with Billy Graham, you're talking about the creature's intentional rebellion against the Creator. When, when you're talking about Niebuhr and Tillich, you're really talking about a far more existential or sociological definition of sin, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose, I think I need to know, I think I know what you mean when you say a personal, knowable God, but I think I need to hear a little more, I mean, I'm no theologian either, but a little more what you mean by that, um, because part of we might just be starting to get into, there's just a difference in theological tradition between an evangelical tradition of the likes of Billy Graham and a more, uh, what I would say, um, Calvinist in a, in a stricter sense, and certainly Lutheran understanding of what it means to be related to God, or rather what it means for God to be related to you. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of personal noble God, and I know that H. Richard Niebuhr, there's a kind of famous, um, that famous anecdote, and actually I have another anecdote that isn't widely known that some think that some who worked closely with H. Richard Niebuhr thought he ended up being kind of a deist by the end of his life, which is kind of shocking to some people, but it's only anecdotal. I haven't had any chance to look into that. I think, uh, you know, Tillich, because of his language, because of his personal life, he, he gets seen as just so ultra-liberal, liberal, so far left. And his concern about knowable God is he doesn't really want God to be named to, to maintain the majesty of God. You know, he uses terms like ultimate uh, concern and ground of being. But if you read, I mean, in my mind, if you read him carefully, if you read Courage to Be, and I make this point in the book, he's really talking about the bondage of the will. He's really a kind of orthodox Lutheran. Well, he has a certain uh, points, but but at a very key point, I would argue that he's rightly seen as on the extreme liberal side because uh, he he really not only speaks about uh, as Martin Luther would speak about the incomprehensibility of God, except as God has revealed Himself to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, he goes so far as to deny that uh, that personality is an appropriate category of God. That you can speak of God in personal terms. He does not see. He does not believe in a God who is a who who is a person who reveals Himself in language rather through a religious experience that's reflected in different religions in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tillich is really a, kind of a, a pantheist in, in one sense uh, when you read a systematic theology. Yeah, see, I think we don't have time to really go into that because I would disagree. I mean, that's a, that's a classical conservative charge against, against Tillich, and, and I just don't see it. I think it's a misreading, but I'm not sure we have time to go into it. And, I mean, I try to deal with that at some level. I mean, my book is really, you know, history-based and trying to show, okay, these guys were popular in the culture, and here's people yeah. responding to them. Uh, Tillich on the pantheistic side, um, I, I think, is, is, as I said, it just it just doesn't quite deal with how central he is, like, for example, on the Protestant principle, and how careful he is to talk about 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit doesn't use that language in the same way. But uh, I mean, because I read the systematic, so it might just be that we have a disagreement about about that that text. Yeah, well, that'd be fair. I enough. mean, it would be just I, I, as easily for you yeah. know on the on the flip side for uh, for the you know sort of classical liberal idea of a Billy Graham is to say, well, here's somebody who doesn't take you know Christianity very seriously, ends up in kind of pietistic moralism, and is really a kind of a cold warrior and an American cultural warrior. And I think that's a misreading of Graham. Yeah, or, or um, at least that's uh, certainly not the whole story. And and uh, right. I I, uh, I had the opportunity in in doctoral work in particular, and subsequently to read uh, uh, Tillich and, and Niebuhr and to do uh, doctoral work on them. Billy Graham, I know that that's quite different. Billy Graham spoke at my inauguration, and so I mean, I, I, the, Billy Graham is a, is a friend. I, I know where he is, and uh, and there's a sense in which the liberal criticisms of Dr. Graham, I think he would accept as uh, as as real. That, that that's how he sees himself. But I think you're exactly right. There's far more to him, and and I think you're right to say that that what distinguishes him is certainly uh, his understanding of sin. And, and his understanding of sin is not merely personal sin. And, and, and so that's why I think when you put him over against Niebuhr, that, there's a really interesting conversation to be had. Because, yeah, they're, they're the closer ones. And yeah. just to backtrack a little bit, I mean, I'm not—part of it is you, you, you may have, uh, from the theological side, have a better sense of Tillich than I do. I'm happy to admit that. I guess what I would like to point out, which is what you just did with Graham, is that—and and I think you've admitted this—there's a lot more to Tillich than just the kind of— way out there liberal and and I don't mean to say that you've you've made that claim at all but that's part of what I was trying to recover in this book is that Tillich needs to be taken seriously and taken seriously within a kind of uh traditional Christian framework even if there are some moments where he seems to be moving outside of that Niebuhr you don't really have to worry about that case and then Graham although some people would want to but and then Graham just as you summarized he needs to be taken seriously um and he's often not uh Anyway, that's yeah. just a kind of background. Well, you know, when, when I look at, at your thesis, um, you know, again, your writing is an historian, and I am just fascinated by this idea that, uh, that you have three men representing such uh, divergent theological traditions, not only in terms of their own work, but in terms of what they bring, in terms of biography, in terms of—and you deal with this when you deal with their backgrounds. You have uh, Billy Graham coming out of, uh, of, of an experience in a, in a crusade meeting with Mordecai Ham. Mm-hmm, uh, you, mm-hmm. you have uh, Reinhold Niebuhr deeply steeped in continental theology, but also in the American immigrant experience, and then in the crushing reality of the Depression in which he's trying to minister, and he sees these great forces of of oppression against labor and all the rest. So, so th- that never leaves him. And, and then, of course, when you talk about evil, it, 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 I would have loved to have had more from Tillich in terms of his reading of evil Having having been a, a one who had to flee Adolf Hitler, right? Yeah, and was at the on the front during World War One. Um, uh, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I uh, certainly could have been more done there. I mean, part of this was you know these three figures are so titanic, the discussion had to end somewhere. I'm just kind of carving out a piece of 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 their thought and really then focusing on the lay reaction, the cultural reaction to them. But they're far richer, <laughs> and 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 there were more texts to consult that that were kind of outside the scope of what I was. Yeah, well, my frustration with do. Tillich here is that Tillich actually doesn't say as much autobiographically as I think he he might have uh, mm-hmm. j- just based upon those experiences. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's true, and he does have these couple of different autobiographical 
sketches that he writes on the boundary is one and I'm blanking on the other title at the moment and I think you're right he he had maybe in some sense the most personal and traumatic experience with uh forces of evil and yet he's maybe the most silent as you say um that's an interesting point I hadn't thought of it in that way if you draw a line from the, the, the precise period of your concern here, what you call the age of anxiety, and, and you, you draw a line from that to the present, uh, where do you see this conversation in terms of American public life now? We do not have titanic figures of this sort. We really don't have public intellectuals of this kind of, of, of influence. Where is this discussion right now? Yeah, I get asked that a, a fair amount, and I don't know that I have – the best answer, because, I mean, one of the things I mentioned a moment ago is people continue to be reaching for uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, especially. Uh, you know, David Brooks writes about this occasionally, but he doesn't really grapple with the concept of evil or sin in the same way. Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, you have some major evangelical public figures uh, who I think speak on these terms, um, but not with the same kind of... Uh, Oh, what? Uh, audience, I suppose. I mean, the audience might be large. I'm not sure. I mean, there's neo-Calvinist stuff. You know, I hear different things that are happening where supposedly there's some returning to these kinds of essential foundational concepts and conversations. But in terms of figures who are out there, they're all, I mean, there are people talking about it, but they're they're academics who don't necessarily have the same kind of audience that these figures did. Or um, I think, you know, Rick Warren comes to mind. Uh, is someone who obviously had a huge uh, impact in a reading public in terms of the, the copies sold, but but I'm not sure that they're addressing it in the same sharpness and consistency as these three figures were. And I'm not, you know, that's why historians, their cop-out is, you know, we're not really that, that great about commenting on the present or certainly the future. Uh, you know, I mentioned a few figures who were talking about it. Um, I've already mentioned Brooks. Um <clears throat> But there isn't anybody of that stature. Uh, there just really isn't. Or these terms get thrown around, evil sin, without a, without much of a context or conversation. Yeah, now, see, that, that's where I'd like to to, uh, to to offer at least my own theory of what happened and, and why this conversation is not, uh, is not widely heard today. And that is because I think – and you cite this, oddly enough, you cite this in your book. You have Philip Reef and uh, the triumph of the therapeutic. And, and I think right. what has happened in the, the transition from the, the mid-20th century to the present is that what he saw happening has happened with a mental and worldview revolution that is almost impossible now to calculate. I think most yeah. Americans want to think in psychotherapeutic terms. They do yeah. not think uh, in the theological terms that Americans, perhaps because of the cataclysms of the Second World War, the Holocaust, and all the rest, were ready to think about. Yeah, I like your comment, and you're helping me along here, because I did some graduate work on just that, the sort of role of psychology in 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 what I back then was talking about, sort of watering down or changing how sin was talked about. I think that's a that's a good a good comment to make. And I think there's a sort of self-esteem revolution. And there's also this notion that original sin or talking about evil, that these are all negative things, just wholly negative, bad things. Don't be pessimistic. Et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not really sure. Well, part of that has to do with the American fascination with optimism and progress. It's its own story. It tells itself. So there's something deeply ingrained in American culture, as much as I've highlighted that, that there was this conversation of sin and evil, that, you know, we, we kind of don't really want to have those conversations. And I think you're right about the therapeutic revolution at some level. I think there is a little bit of a window opening up, though, 
I mean, I'm just talking about when I'm teaching my students who are much, much less optimistic about human character. But whether they would put that in category of sin, I don't think so. Um, uh, or in, I teach a course on the problem of evil that's very much eaten up by students, both at this secular institution or state institution, Boise State, and at my last institution, which was church-related. They're interested in the concepts, but I think you're right. The categories are less um, vibrant and alive for them. And, you know, that's partly what Tillich was up to. Let's redefine the terms, update them. And then he realized, you know what, you can't do that. There's a reason why sin is called sin. There's a reason why evil is called evil. Um, and he lamented the fact that he tried to change the terminology at some level. Uh, anyway, that's I appreciate your, your analysis. Well, I really appreciate the conversation, and uh, I, I was very glad to find your book. I, I found it a, a really enjoyable read. At, at several points, I wanted to uh, to pick up with an argument and uh, and to have a conversation, and, and that's why it was fun to have this conversation today. I appreciate you joining me. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Well, that's the kind of conversation that I think is worth having. A conversation with a scholar who's done some very serious work on three men, in this case, Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, and Billy Graham, each of whom deserves very major historical and theological consideration, each of whom is a complicated figure. And even in this conversation, you heard some rather different approaches to understanding all of them, but especially Paul Tillich. You know, when you start to look at major intellectual figures such as this, they are always more complex than might at first appear. But at the end of the day, we have to come to some judgment about what such an individual represented, what he intended for us to understand, and the legacy that he leaves. As we said, every intelligent person has to come to terms with the question of what's wrong with the world. We are reminded of G.K. Chesterton, who once answered a newspaper editor's question to that effect by saying simply, I am. Well, that's one very good answer to the question. But indispensable to any Christian conversation about this question is that short three-letter word, sin. The Scripture in both the Old and the New Testaments presents sin in graphic and extremely honest terms. It tells us what we desperately do need to know, and that is, who is the problem, where is the problem, what is the problem? And that's where a consideration of the doctrine of original sin has to get back to the original issue. What happened and what does it mean? Now, Scripture answers that very, very clearly. First of all, in Genesis 3, and then in what could be seen as an exposition of the issue throughout the entirety of Scripture. In reality, sin is a rebellion against a holy God. It is a conscious, intentional, volitional rebellion, an act of disobedience of the creature against the Creator. And that sets in effect, of course, an entire world of human sinfulness that goes out from our own personal sin into social structures of sin and into uh, an unseen and yet extremely deadly conspiracy of sinners, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But that truth does make its appearance from time to time, and it is fascinating to me that in the last half of the 20th century, you had a public conversation about sin that just could not be avoided. Just think of what had been happening in the 20th century. You had the cataclysms of World War I and World War II. You had killing on a massive scale. You had acts of war and barbarity that went beyond the human imagination. And then, of course, there were the brutal truths of the Holocaust and other events that took place, including the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. 
any way you look at those issues and construe their morality, the bottom line is that human violence, human deadliness, was evident as never before. Just the evils of the Third Reich themselves provided the laboratory for a human consideration of sin that made it almost impossible for any morally sensitive or intelligent person to fail to give some account for that reality. And then by the time you proceed through the second half of the 20th century, you walk right into the reality of of the civil rights movement and a new understanding of the institutional representations of sin. You you hear calls of justice, and and you hear calls for the redemption of, of a people and, of course, of a nation from its sin. Well, all of this points to the fact that in the mid-20th century, there was this fascinating public conversation about sin, even original sin, and Andrew Fistuin has done a remarkable job of pulling together these three figures, Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, and Billy Graham, and putting them in something of a public conversation now decades after the death in the case of Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich, and the appearance of each of these three men on the cover of Time magazine now decades ago. Now, as I look at this book, I see a fascinating consideration. I see a good work of historical and cultural analysis of the importance of these three men and in the intellectual formation of the people at the time and of the society as a whole. Now, I'm going to differ with Professor Fistuin on his interpretation of Paul Tillich. I'm reminded of the the atheist philosopher Sidney Hook's comment about Paul Tillich when he said after reading his systematic theology, I am an atheist. Paul Tillich is an atheist. The difference is that I know I'm an atheist, and Paul Tillich does not yet know that. But when you're looking at a major theological figure such as Paul Tillich, there's always more than meets the eye. And one of the things that conservative evangelicals need to understand is that even someone like Paul Tillich has something to tell us in terms of the indictment of the age. He has something to tell us about the problem of the human predicament. Uh, However, he's not going to get us anything close to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the answer. Reinhold Niebuhr is one of those complicated figures that, once read, reminds us that there's much to be gained by the reading, but at the same time, it's almost impossible to know exactly where we would place him theologically. With Billy Graham, a very simple and straightforward message of salvation. At the same time, an identification with American culture that, looked at in retrospect, may have insinuated more than he intended at the time. All of this in the context of a public conversation that appears very distant to us today because there is so little intellectual conversation in America today, especially that is theologically informed. In a world of Oprah and The View and uh, the kind of talk radio and talk television we have today, it's hard to imagine there once was a day when many middle-class Americans picked up the books of these major figures and considered them. Well, this is a day that requires a recovery of a legitimate Christian intellectual conversation. And that's what we're about in this program. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Before leaving you, I want to invite you to the upcoming D3 Youth Conference to be held on the campus of Southern Seminary this summer. It'll be held June 27th through 30th. It's designed to develop students' understanding of leadership, worldview, and missions. D3 will be a summer experience full of learning and growing opportunities for high school students serious about following Christ. I'm excited to have Eric Bancroft and Army Major Jeff Struker joining me to speak as well as musical guests Flame and the Hoffmans. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.